Welcome to How to Enjoy Experimental Film. At the end of 2021, Simon Payne, who has appeared twice on this show now, released a book which he co-edited with Andrew Vallens called Film Talks, 15 Conversations on Experimental Cinema, in which 30 artists working in the UK and Europe engaged in conversations about their work and the state of experimental film in general. Live events connected to the conversations in the book are taking place throughout 2022, and the following recording is of one such event, which I had the honour of chairing. This conversation was the first podcast event for this show to have been recorded in person and with an audience. It took place at Anglia Ruskin University on the 16th of February. Our topic of conversation was Three Steps to the Avant-Garde, apropos of my suggestion that even in the most mainstream of films, we are very seldom far removed from more experimental work. For instance, some will remember a conversation between myself and Jeff Scher, in which he discussed the filmmaker Francis Thompson. Thompson's film NYNY, a visual portrait of New York shot through a variety of prism and kaleidoscopic lenses, creates a joyous exploration of the city that never sleeps. Widely considered a key work in the American avant-garde of the 1950s, Thompson himself would go on to co-found IMAX and to win an Oscar for a pioneering work of expanded cinema with the film To Be Alive, as well as becoming head of film production for NASA. This episode's discussion is between myself and the filmmakers and film educators Neil Henderson and Andrew Valance. Neil Henderson studied at the Kent Institute of Art and Design and then went on to gain an MA from the Slade. His early works tended towards expanded cinema, including works for up to 100 Super 8 projectors running simultaneously. More recently, his work has been more dominated by nature and landscapes, employing durational strategies to explore how factors such as tides change the appearance of the land. Other works also show an interest in photographic processes, including Polaroids, and the way that duration plays an important role in producing a photographic image. Andrew Valance studied alongside Neil in Kent before attending the RCA for both an MA and a PhD. His video works concern the urban environment, its sedimented histories and relational narratives. Andrew is also active in curating and championing experimental film programmes, with a keen focus on the importance of dissemination of film works to as wide an audience as possible. Let's now head to Anglia Ruskin University for the discussion. We also screened films as part of this talk, so I may interject along the way. You'll also hear a projector running in the background occasionally. Subject of today's talk is three steps from the avant-garde. We are going to explore how the avant-garde and the mainstream feed off one another. Um, but my first question to, to both of you is because we tend to drift towards experimental and avant-garde work from the mainstream. What were your initial ways in? <clears throat> um, for me, it was, to it was music video, total music video. That's all it was, nothing else. From um, Parents weren't artistic in any way, so the only way to kind of find out about that kind of other, other sort of work was really through um, just seeing like weird stuff on, on the music channel, which I, I had a group in Canada, so we had this music, 24-hour music station, video station, and so that's where you kind of see like weirder things. And it was particularly, I think, in the 1980s that the, the music video was this sort of a space for um, 
you know, kind of experimental work to happen to sort of try things out. I think also you had a lot of ambitious or wannabe filmmakers who would maybe start out with music video and they'd maybe been seeing a lot of weird stuff at, on their film courses and they thought, oh, I'm going to rip off that Len Lye bit or I'll do a bit of Stan Brackage over here. So it kind of, it came through, you know, like, like a very kind of a commercial avenue, you know, sort of a 24-hour music video station. <clears throat> um, and, you know, and the kind of stuff you, that I could tell was different because it just didn't look, it didn't look like, you know, it didn't look like, uh, you know, Rio or uh, in <laughs> AHA or anything, <laughs> which those are good videos. But it didn't have, um, what I noticed about all that stuff was the texture was kind of different to a lot of it. It just looked kind of grubbier. It was, just, was kind of more raw. Um, it looked very different from the kind of mainstream stuff. Although, having said that, so many 80s pop videos look really raw compared to anything made now. They all look quite weird and experimental. But um, So it was totally through like a pop avenue. It was not from going to a gallery. My parents were saying, let's go to a gallery <laughs> and look at some stuff. Um, I'm not against that. that was, I'm glad I didn't have that in a way. I didn't have those kinds of parents. But it was, it was, through, it was through the culture. It's through the culture. I, I think my in initial encounters were very similar. Um, I, I grew up in a household where we didn't, well, my parents didn't listen to any popular music. They only listened to classical music. And if we went to a gallery, it was to see somebody who was able to paint uh, a likeness mm. of a tiger. Or, <laughs> um, and, that was, and that was, of course, and it still is uh, something to behold. Mm. Um, so I was always, always interested in music and growing up the time that I did, which was very much like Neil, I mm. think, in the 80s, I didn't know that there was a thing called experimental film mm. or um, if I did, I wouldn't have identified it as such. Mm -hmm. But I became aware that bands, say, like Cabaret Voltaire, mm. were involved in a type of uh, image manipulation which seemed to ape what they were doing sonically. And little by little, I kind of pieced it together and understood that this was a form that extended beyond just illustrating mm. music. Yeah. Um, and I think that how it's, it's really difficult, I think, to try and convey what that media landscape looked like mm. compared to now. <clears throat> you know, like when I'm talking to uh, my oldest son is 18. So when I, I try to convey to him about how I found out about bands or whatever it might be, trying to sort of say, well, you know, I stayed up late and I listened to John Peel and I recorded it because, you know, I would need to go to school the next day and mm, listen mm, back to the... Mm, and I would pick out, you know, the couple of new bands I was excited about and then I would, you know, go to a record shop and say, you know, do you have a single buy? Mm, mm. Or I would go to... Um, I grew up in Croydon, so I can remember my excitement when Virgin opened a branch near the Whitgift Centre and going in there and thinking, oh, you know, wow, that's the new new record by Talking Heads. and But not really knowing much about Talking Heads or making any real critical judgment, but just liking mm. the cover, liking mm. the artwork mm -hmm. and getting excited by that. And then, of course, 
you start to tie together different producers, different musicians, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and you, you you know you make your own network network of influences, don't you? But it was a very very instinctive thing, which had very little rhyme or reason, and you know uh, it, it contested. Kind of as chaotic as bouncing around the internet in a weird sort of a way. Well, but with well. I don't know. I don't, no, know. I don't think they're very different, okay, I would right. say. Okay. I would say. I, I mean, because I, 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 I think it was really self-driven, mm. but it was also self-driven in the way that the material that you were encountering was quite sort of limited. Mm. You know, it wasn't, you know, and later, obviously, I would go to London and go to record shops and, you know, your horizons would broaden according to your budget. Mm. But mm. I think initially it was... It was um, yeah, quite, yeah. the horizons were, were well, narrow. No, no they, were, they, they were. The internet can feel narrow sometimes too, I think. But yeah, no, you're right. Um, the, the, the other thing is, is, and this is probably the same for you, but you know, occasionally you come across those films where there's like a weird bit to them, like, or I remember like watching 2001 and you know, the, the, mm. the space, the, the Stargate kind of corridor sequence in 2001. Or remember like Lynch was becoming a big deal in the late 80s and if you read something about Lynch, you'd inevitably maybe mention something about some weird filmmaker like, you know, Maya Darren or something, something like that. So there were, there were these, like, ways you could find a kind of a way in. Like, there were sort of, like, hints, <laughs> suggestions, maybe. And, um, but, like, it was very much about measuring up um, what looked, like, more slick with what looked a little bit more artisan and, you know, or, um, or yeah, you know, more, more creative. I think that's a good point. And I think... Looking back on it, it was trying. I was trying to find this the visual equivalent mm. to the, you know, the sonic. Um, uh, I suppose inquiries that mm. I was making, you know, the the music that I was interested in, and it's and a lot of it was like e electronic. Yeah. And, I, and I was looking for some kind of visual equivalent. Yeah, and yeah. at first, I just wanted images that seemed to attach themselves mm. to those sounds. And then that became a little bit more mm. um, thoughtful with time. Mm -hmm. So not, not knowing um, that there was such a thing as experimental film, what was the sort of penny drop moment for you when you actually clocked that this was something that was going on it's probably going to like college really it's only then okay <laughs> i don't know if yeah. there was any particular it moment was it was definitely college i think um, which college yeah, uh, like um like the, the first course i did sort of um uh, what was it it was like a, when i was like 19 20. but what what were you oh found? Oh, oh it was what would i found hmm. some um well someone would have showed um like like a Len Lai or something like that. Oh, okay. You know, we were doing like an animation workshop. I said, oh, look at this. You did it without a camera. You know, that would have been it. You know, it See, would have I, been that moment. I can't remember. I mean, I did an art foundation, but I don't think we... I think there was zero moving image or film. I think yeah. we looked at some photographers, but there wasn't any thought that Back film then was Back then it was a bit of a lottery, because I did an A-level in film studies and had a really good film studies teacher who was like showing like Chinese fifth generation films on 16 mil prints and you drag wow. the projector and show. It's like very weird, like you probably found that yourselves, you know, you just get a good, you get an interesting lecture it just shows you some stuff when you're younger and it just it opens a gate, I think really. So I got quite, I got quite lucky with some fairly good um, um, people, teachers, you know, that sort of, from that sort of 18 to 21, 22 kind of period, <clears throat> really then. 
but yeah, I definitely knew it was like, oh, that's a thing. I think with me, the kind of the penny drop moment was with nothing to do with education, was probably the advent of Channel 4. Right. And the various um, uh, experimental uh, uh, streams that they had and, and their um, ethos to try and engage with this material, which didn't last for long, but I think was incredibly, incredibly powerful mm. in um, offering up just, you know, a whole world that I had no idea existed. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think most of it went over my head. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not right, like yeah. I kind of watched it and understood it, but it, it was it was more of a visceral encounter. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I've got very limited memories of of how I sort of drifted towards this stuff, but I do remember seeing, um, and again, it was funded by Channel Four, I think, one of Derek Jarman's films, mm. and really enjoyed watching the film, but then looked it up, googled it, and it had a little tab on it that said people are also interested in experimental film. I thought, oh, is that what experimental film is? Right. That was how the, the term sort of emerged. I think that maybe is a fundamental difference because I remember that, you know, so I went to, did my BA with Simon and Neil, and I remember there was a room and it had a singular computer in it. And I remember saying to one of the technicians, well, why is there only one computer in that room? And they're saying, Oh, that links to the internet, <laughs> and and, I, and I sort of I nodded sagely, oh, but not actually having a clue what yeah. the internet was, and saying, "Well, what does that do?" And I said, "You know, it's the World Wide Web. Everything. You know, you can Everything. you can go online and you can get information. It's like an encyclopedia, only bigger." Mm. And I was thinking, "Oh, you know, don't think that's going to catch on." Mm. Um, so. It, so it was very. It was a very all sort of hand hand to mouth and word of mouth kind of existence. It was sort of predated um, Google and its competitors. But like, just I don't know if I ever like. I'm kind of seeing that sort of stuff, like particular college or even finding it on my own. But I don't know if it's like. I don't know if I'd say I enjoyed it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I'm not like. I'm not quite sure what it was. It wasn't like oh, you know. Um, it just seems sort of it, it was like interesting and not I don't know I find it hard I'm just kind of thinking about this the, the term enjoyment and like what what you know what that is or what's the relationship between finding something interesting and, and enjoyment and because you know getting enjoyment suggests getting some kind of pleasure out of it and I definitely did I definitely did get pleasure pleasure out of watching that stuff that's not that's not the issue but it's 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 um I'm not sure if it was an enjoyment. I don't know really. I don't. It's just it just really draw, just attracted to it. There's an it's intrigue, sort of, I think. It's just an intrigue, really. It's, oh, something else that I don't. Something you know, something else is possible because, like you sort of grown up. Like I think it's definitely not the case now. But if you kind of grew up in the '70s and '80s, it's like a bit of a monolithic culture, really. Like it was just one culture, and that was sort of it, really. Whereas everything is much more kind of broken up now, and they were like. I suppose it sort of suggested countercultures or op, you know oppositions like oppositions to the kind of the dominant mainstream idea which like you know do a module in here every Monday so some people hear the independent cinema module and it's like that module is very much about oh where you know where's the line between being really independent and you know kind of compromising and and a lot of the films we look at are films which are 
you know, offer like an alternative vision or a sort of counter cinema or a counter kind of um, point of view, whether that's in like the aesthetics of how things look or ideas. So, I, I, yeah, you just like, I think I just found those things interesting because they seem to be offering some un, like a different, um, a different vision of things. Which yeah, was, which was enjoyable. So I, I guess, guess. it's fine. It's no, fine. I think that's a really good point. Um, yeah, it, it, enjoyment doesn't seem to quite encapsulate the sensation. It was definitely much more to do with it being a counter narrative, but also a counterpoint, mm. and some kind of, uh, as I said before, you know, um, connection to the more you know, um, interesting, um, awkward, if you like, mm -hmm. sonic recordings, but also, you know, it's like, I defy anybody to say they truly enjoyed John Peel shows, you know, from, yeah. from the beginning yeah, to the yeah, end, yeah. you know, yeah. there were always yeah. like yeah, yeah, on yeah. those shows, lots of bands which you kind of suffered through. Yeah. And, that, and then of course other people probably love those bands. Yeah. But the point was that it was there and it was offering something else. Yeah. And I think that was very much when I said, and probably I was initially attracted to the works which had a more um, documentary like um, aesthetic. Mm, mm. They weren't necessarily documentaries, mm. but they were works that somehow, because I could relate to that. Yeah. Because I was interested in documentaries. My, you know, my understanding wasn't very sophisticated, mm. but I could understand what was going on. Mm. And uh, probably like a lot of people, I um, encountered. So you know, there was probably many m notable encounters. So first, the you know Robert Drew, and. Uh, his whole school of veri verite filmmakers mm. but then building on that probably something like Sun Soleil mm, yeah, and yeah. again I, I, I don't that's a, really, that's a big deal for that and Legete those are like really important films I think yeah to, and, to I, and I know they've become they become these monuments and probably mm. uh, you know every, every tutor on similar courses mm. up and down but probably worldwide kind of encourages students yeah, to watch yeah. those films yeah. but um, I can remember um, certainly going to the ICA it must have been one of the f you know first screenings of that sort that I went to and seeing that and thinking oh you know this mm. is this is I was aware something else something was at play here which yeah, I hadn't yeah. encountered yeah, elsewhere yeah, yeah. Mm. and thinking back I'd forgotten about this so I remember going to see uh, a Bill Viola Oh, right. uh, screening as well um, probably by mistake I think yeah, but uh, okay. still but getting something <laughs> from it because of the way that they were you know he was engaging with imagery mm, um, mm. wasn't like anything I'd seen before and he's certainly not somebody who um, I would necessarily would say was a kind of inspiration or anything mm. but um, there were, again, there was a rawness in his image making, which I, I really enjoyed. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think also that level of intrigue for, you know, in, in something that is so consciously not mainstream to the point of being anti-mainstream, that there is a kind of sense of something a little bit more edgy in, in relation to that, which can provide quite a, an, 
quite a high level of intrigue. Mm. Um, so you know, somebody that's shot on amateur film stock or that's just plain stolen a camera to make a film. Mm. Um, you know, those things were quite uh, were quite different from what you knew of mainstream mm-hmm. culture mm-hmm. that you went through the, the appropriate channels and you would eventually you know rise through the ranks perhaps perhaps mm. and get to make your sort of graduate to make your first feature film well and and <clears throat> you saying that dan um makes reminds me actually of something that we touch on in our conversation i mean one of the one of the aspects of um the films that i would encounter that I always really enjoyed were representations of London, but from another time, you know, mm. documentary representations. Or e- in, even in fiction films, you know, you look back at the 60s or the 70s and they have a documentary-like quality to them mm. if they're shooting on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I, I realised I was sort of drawn to that material mm-hmm. and started to see rather like Neil uh, indicated earlier, to seek out certain moments in narrative films which almost played against the form. Yeah. And again, this is something that we discuss in the uh, conversation, this, the wind in the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those moments where you're on a London street and you know, the, the characters are going from A to B and you lose track of the characters and lose interest in the characters and what you're looking at is the the cars, the clothes, the shops, mm. the aesthetics, mm. how the landscape has changed. Um, and over time I filtered out the narrative and just kept, <laughs> just kept the landscape. I, I mean, I guess that whole documentary aspect must feed into your first choice of film here. Well, I think... I So... Um, Dan's alluding to a report by Bruce Connor, which is a, a film that he, well, he made eight different versions of it, and he started making it in um, 64 and completed it in 67. And um, so, shall I speak about it now or after we've seen it? Because I think in some ways, it's quite you can nice give it to a, like a brief maybe give it a brief introduction, and, and, yeah. then, okay. and then we'll watch it, and then you can see something better afterwards. Well, the way that that connects to what I've just been talking about is that um, Bruce Connor, um, his work is largely made up of what is euphemistically called found footage, and um, I always feel that. Um, found certainly with an artist like Bruce Connor isn't quite right it's mm. more selected footage mm, mm, mm. there's a found just as a, a randomness to it mm. Rand, but with Bruce Connor there most certainly isn't mm. I mean it's very very kind of like exact in the way that he's using the material and I think that um, the what you're going to see, we've got a visual stream and an audio stream. And through his image making, this mismatch at times really throws um, a certain dissonance, that's the word I'm looking for, a certain dissonance in terms of what we're seeing and what we're hearing, but of course 
you know how that adds up to our in, in our own perception of the material so he's working with narrative to a certain extent but at the same time he's deconstructing it it's it's a narrative work but it's also the antithesis of it um i think further to that what's what's kind of really important to to think about is just what these images mean what these image images mean in terms of what they meant when they were first recorded what they mean when he connor manipulated them and perhaps what they also mean now so you have this series of associations which personally i i think are re really sort of fascinating and allow the work to be incredibly expansive to speak of history but also still have um, currency now <laughs> As you may have guessed, at this point we took time to view Bruce Connor's film Report, which, as Andrew explains, consists of very carefully selected footage, mostly newsreel material, detailing the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. As you'll hear from the discussion coming up, the film doesn't exactly depict the events, but rather recounts and questions the material in some surprising ways. I don't want to go into too much detail here, as it is a film that does need to be experienced first-hand, but do try to see it if you can. At the request of Connor's estate, it is unlikely that you'll find this film very easily online, but do keep your eyes peeled for screenings of the work on film, if at all possible. actually worth saying I hadn't seen that before I knew you had chosen that but I thought I'll, I'll hold fire on watching it until you actually introduce so Dan, it so I can come in fresh um, well it's a very difficult question to answer but um, I, I don't know I, I do like I, I always respond to things where there's a kind of free association of spoken word and image which I find quite um, quite compelling because you you find yourself making connections that would, you wouldn't necessarily be making in a, in a more conventional piece of cinema, I suppose. I mean, I remember when I first saw it, and um, as I said previously, I was interested in documentary, and I was interested also in history. And um, I don't think I really knew anything about it beforehand, mm. other than I'd heard it was found footage, but I had no idea what really what that meant. Um, and so when you initially start watching it and you know I'm imagining uh, most people have a sense of who Kennedy is and perhaps what happened on that fateful day even, even if it's just through Oliver Stone <laughs> um, and this idea that something is not quite what it seems mm -hmm. and I think one of the interesting things about found footage I've, I've always felt so if you think about his earlier mm -hmm. movie is that his reuse of material or his recontextualizing of material seems to release from it something that is secret mm 
mm. something which isn't um, immediately obvious in its original usage. So when I first saw this, and I was thinking, well, you know, why doesn't he just show us the motorcade? Mm -hmm. um, and it's worth knowing as well that the audio is from a LP which was compiled. I mean, can you imagine who would yeah. buy such a thing? <laughs> and uh, four days, four days that shook the world. Yeah. So yeah. the you know that material which is from um, drop the needle. Go yeah. Home. Wow, that's great. Four glass of wine from. Um, <laughs> radio broadcasts so you know and one of the things that of course strikes you and I, I, I heard there was some sniggers was the kind of banality of mm. what's being said you know this is an event which is, which is seen to be one of the key events mm. of 20th century and in terms of American politics one could argue it, it still is the key mm. post-war event Yet it's been described in such kind of mm -hmm. slightly like clinical, clinical, but also excruciating way. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, there are some women who are weeping, yes, <laughs> and some men too. <laughs> and and I and I think and I think that this that you know this coming together of this soundtrack with with the image track, and obviously in the second. Um, part of the film he takes it somewhere else and that was another question that I was asking myself you know so why why is he taking us into this other mm -hmm. realm um, mm -hmm. this uh, realm of perhaps free association you know what yeah. are we meant to kind of understand from this what you know mm. is it about from, it's like implications you know you have a, a report that is I mean we, we can comment on the slight absurdity of the reporting but what's being said is being said in a very blunt and to the point sort of way, while the images are more like your mind darting off in other other directions, mm. considering the implications of what's being said. And, and I think what's really important to remember, you know, this is the first visualised, properly visualised president. So if we think back to primary, um, the... Um, Penny Bader, yeah, Drew, yeah, yeah. Verite documentary. There was another one, I believe it's called Close Up, when he had taken office and it was about you know, right. a yeah, day yeah, in yeah. the life yeah, of yeah. a president or something similar. Um, and so there's this idea that he is a creation, and, and with, of mm, course with mm. Jackie, of the modern age. Mm, mm, and he's mm. existing within this realm. And as, again, you know, everybody... Uh, has heard or at least believes that he won the election because he presented better than Nixon mm, on mm, television. Mm. And of course, we, we've all heard the stories that those that heard the debate on radio mm. thought Nixon, Nixon had won. won. Yeah. So this idea that he's been exposed, literally, that he is a creation for the modern age. And I think that Connor's and Connor described his relationship with this material as being obsessive, and I think you can see that. Mm. This idea of reworking an image over and over again, trying to reveal some kind of secret, but also, I think, you know, Kennedy and Camelot has become so mythic, and it was mythic at that time. Um, this idea that the myth somehow can be punctured 
that the myth um, can the you know the spectacle can be ruptured. So you know we initially in the film mm. see the motorcade, and then we go to this quite intense, obviously very experimental period, mm. where mm. the image is withheld from us. But I don't know about you, but I was still thinking about that image, yeah, and I was yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. about yeah. all the other images because, mm. and obviously we're thinking about the Sapruda film as well. You know, the the perhaps the most famous. I mean, we're talking about experimental film yeah, here, yeah, and that's yeah. probably the most famous piece of eight millimeter film yeah, ever yeah, shot. Yeah, ever shot for sure. Yeah. And of course, what you know, we 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 have that. You know the. the the distance to have the knowledge of all these different elements so that film which was shot that day was bought by life magazine and wasn't actually broadcast on american tv until 1975 mm. so the footage that we associate with kennedy's assassination was not the footage which americans and people around the mm. world mm. saw mm. at that no, time no, no, no. and i think that's worth remembering mm. and of course then we have the Warren Commission, we have a cons you know, conspiracies that surround that. But Warren Commission, interestingly, said that that film was the only unimpeachable witness. This idea that the film did capture something which um, no one else saw. But of course, it didn't actually show us yeah, anything yeah, other yeah. than that particular um, field of vision, mm -hmm. which captured of course Kennedy's death in graphic detail but it didn't show us of course anything beyond that and if you look at Connor's film the way he's de deconstructing that myth mythology the way he's using images which are, we're, we are quite familiar with even if we weren't alive at that time I think is um, he has, there's a number of things at play here. There's a desire in some way to, to literally reverse time. Yeah, that's to have yeah. To have hindsight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, if, if only we could go back. And, yeah. and I think that's one of the reasons why he includes in the second half, it, you know, there's that long list of the, the journey that the president is going to mm, take. Mm. And I, I imagine that was the last time ever uh, head of state's journey was yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well known. Turn left, turn right, <laughs> go under the bridge. <laughs> I mean, it had turn. a certain poetry to it, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, but I was thinking, oh, where, oh, where did it happen? And what was the point? Where, how far did he get? So it was making me sort of think. Yeah, but he's halfway through. Yeah, under the underpass, where it was. Um, yeah, well, he was such a kind of media spectacle himself, and that, that film mm. is like absolutely in keeping with his whole sort of media. Like that's how all presidents now are presented through the, through um, the media in that way. Um, shall I play something now? Well, I'm just gonna, you know, this may be just to conclude. <laughs> are you saying we've been going on about <laughs> no, this no, too no, much? No, that wasn't in any way. Well, I can take that. That's a deal. No, no, I just, I just <laughs> thought I'm aware of time. It's okay. No, but oh, I, no, I, no, I no, think no. just yeah. sort of conclude. I think that one of the things that is is occurring in Connor's film. You're seeing this matching up between our own awareness, mm. our own memories, mm. and then he does. He takes this, of course, incredibly well-known event, mm. but he manages to make you think about it again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he manages yeah, to yeah, make you yeah. think about it anew, and he's throwing up kind of connotations. Mm. 
and he's throwing up images which initially seem quite straightforward, but the more you think about them, you know, the complexity mm -hmm. um, really, I think, is incredibly impactful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That second part is great, you know, the kind of use of the commercials, uh, mm. the, the brilliance of the cutting. I mean, these things have been put together in a fairly primitive way, actually, but the precision of it is just like, it's a really like, beautiful, you know, really beautifully constructed sequence, you know. So, I mean, you, you've, somehow we've, we've got from that connection or disconnection occasionally between sound and image. Mm. So I wonder if, if on that we can bring mm. Neil in, um, mm. in discussing your, your interest in music uh, video. Okay, well, I'm going to play, uh, play this. And actually, it works really nicely with the film that um, Andrew's just made. The film's called Berlin Horse. It's by Malcolm McGrice. And again, it's a kind of a found footage film. It's from 1970. So a similar kind of historic period of sort of experimental kind of filmmaking during the 60s and 70s, which is a sort of a golden period for, for that kind of filmmaking. <coughs> and Mo uh, Malcolm McGrice is a sort of very significant figure in British experimental filmmaking. He's a practitioner, he's a painter as well, he kind of comes very much out of a fine art background. Yeah, that's right, he was a painter originally, I think at art school. And kind of one of these, one of those generations of British artists who became kind of like, kind of a mixed media artist or a multimedia artist, you know, went into the art school to be a painter and then discovered like, oh shit, I can make photographs or I can make short films. And so um, there's something very painterly about this film that you'll see. Um, the film is made up of found footage. Uh, was not well. Some of the I think the first half of the film is Lagrice's shot. It's of a it's of a horse. It's kind of skipping around <laughs> on a lead, and it's um, kind of cut together and processed in a similar way to what you've just seen in in, in report. But then it's sort of um, what Lagrice is doing is he starts kind of tinkering and playing around with it. It's, it's a very uh, visual piece. Um, it's very kind of textural and very kind of rhythmic. What I think is also really interesting about it is that the, the soundtrack is composed by Brian Eno. It's a very early example of his kind of work. Now, Brian Eno is somebody who went on to work, this is the th my three steps thing here. Brian Eno went on to work with Coldplay recently on their albums. There you go, they've done it. That was just two steps, actually, one step even. Uh, but before that, you know, um, Eno is really known for being a, a founder of uh, Roxy Music, who was sort of a British um, like art rock band and having this kind of uh, really like important collaborative relationship with David Bowie in the late 70s. And then like U2. But before that... But before that, there was this. No, I was going to say, oh. before that was David, his collaboration with David Bowie. Oh, God, but David Bowie, which, which we'll, links which, to which, Bruce Connor. We've done, which links to Bruce Connor. It's unbelievable. It's like, it's like, we, it's like we went on Zoom for a few hours <laughs> and just <laughs> decided this would be how it worked. Anyway, I think... Um, Anyway, it's, uh, it's really lovely, very kind of trancey kind of piece. The film Berlin Horse uses and reuses footage by photographing off the screen and then producing further solarization effects with an optical printer. Of it, the film's maker, Malcolm Legrice, writes, it attempts to deal with some of the paradoxes of the relationships of the real time which exists when the film was being shot, with the real time that exists when the film is being screened, and how this can be modulated by technical manipulation of the images and sequences. 
The processes by which the film is made are extremely rigorous, though the viewing experience is undeniably hypnotic, a multi-sensory experience that appeals far beyond the intellectual. So the first part, the, the first part of the film is um, the Grice just shot that, and the second part of the film is I think it's come from a like an early silent film, which he's sort of spliced in as well. So when you see like more of the horses escaping the barn, it's like get quite, find it quite moving. At the end of that film, you know, they, they escaped, get them out. Something about it. The, there's a fire happening. It's made using an optical printer, which is, so what Legrice is doing is he's kind of refit, he's reshooting the footage again and again, but each time he's like, you know, he's like zooming in a bit more to it, or he's adding a filter to create those sort of color effects. Um, he's using some solarization, I think, which must be happening in the, in the, um, in the processing stage. But it's really, um, it's a really lovely, it's, a, it's an incredibly visual, kind of very kind of pretty piece of work, and you know, about rhythms and loops. And I think the Eno soundtrack are, I think it's a couple of tape loops which are slowly sort of moving in and out of phase with each other. So I think there's, I think, I think it's like two loops playing the same thing over and over again, but just sort of slightly shifting. That the kind of stuff I was drawn to was just that initially that kind of and the experimental stuff was just like the kind of visual, the visual ideas that were being explored, right? More than the political side of it or the social side of it or uh, representational aspects. It was just like how things looked and how things looked kind of rawer and more, you know, more, it looks more real maybe. And that kind of, that, that, you know, connection was really important to me. I thought, oh, okay, it's like, that's interesting. I know that. I know who he is. And now I know this. And they're sort of like kind of connected in that way. Does it link to the music video for you? Because it does quite strongly to me. Yeah, it's definitely like a kind of, it could easily be a kind of, Briny uh, music video <laughs> as much as is it his film or is it is it Legrasse's film or is it well it's, it, it is his film the really the heavy the heavy lifting is is Legrasse mm. kind of fig, trying to figure out what to do with that material and you know Eno's dropped him with a few ideas you know it's just a couple of loops which are which are kind of moving around um, but that it's kind of a, a real it's a bit of a holy sort of relic I think of British sort of mm. experimental filmmaking isn't it and if you haven't seen it before you know, now you have. Probably in the wrong aspect ratio, but we have some issues. We, we have some issues in here, as uh, everybody knows. It comes in here on a Monday. Um, yeah, you know that film. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, um, watching watching it again. You're, I mean, you're right. I mean, I can't remember when I first saw it, but uh, I think I think I probably saw it um, projected somewhere as a um, and you know a number of works that I was told, you know, you must know these works, mm. you know, yeah, sort of, yeah, you know, yeah. these are the building blocks, as yeah, it were. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it's very interesting seeing it now, and, because it's certainly not one I haven't um, seen in a while, because I think often, you know, like, with music, you might mm. think, well, you know, there's no point in listening to Heroes, because, mm. yeah, you know, yeah, I've yeah. done that, yeah. listen, you know, I've, I've, worn, I've worn that one, mm, mm out mm. and then you encounter it again and you're like oh actually yeah, yeah, you know yeah. it, it deserves its place in the pantheon and I think watching it after the report I was really struck I mean we we discussed you know the works we, we were going to screen today but we didn't I don't we didn't sit down and watch the whole screening and rehearse the conversation but I was really struck how in those two works, you've mm. got two really, really 
slightly divergent, mm. but obviously related themes mm. that start to kind of emanate from um, experimental cinema, mm. you know, from from the sixties mm. onwards. Mm. This idea where you're taking material and you're you're, you're interrogating, yeah, and you're it, finding it, yeah, like yeah, yeah. hidden that's meaning right, in that's it. That's right. That's right. And it's it forms a, a commentary. Mm. Um, it's not. It's not. It's not a kind of vacuous commentary. It's a commentary made of ideas, mm, 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 mm. and it indicates a critical way of um, thinking about imagery, thinking about sound, and thinking about the relationship mm. between them. And as such, is a. It's a. It's a political piece. Uh, you know, uh, Connor, as far as I know, is not an overtly political maker. Mm. And and interestingly enough, this that. Report was the last film he made for quite some time. He, you know, he sort of turned his back on filmmaking, and he became interested in the uh, making visuals, psychedelic visuals, mm. and that was very much what he did mm. um, in that whole West Coast um, scene. And then seeing um, Malcolm's film here, and it's the, the you know the colours. Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. imagistic. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, yeah. And the the sort of simple simple patterns, mm. which obviously you know, there's real kind of complexity and, and depth in in it. But it you know, um, it it really feels like these are mm. two sort of channels that people yeah, yeah, ended up. Yeah. And obviously with the British. Mm. You know, experimental scene that's often seen as the bit more kind of pithy, yeah, you know, sure. materialist, structural materialist one. Mm, you know, mm, it, mm. Let, it doesn't have the sort of lightness of touch. Mm, mm. But watching this, you know, today, you know, it feels incredibly kind of light in the best possible mm, sense mm, of the word. Mm, you know, mm. it's uh, really inviting and vibrant. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Neil and Andrew further demonstrated the link between the mainstream and avant-garde cultures by showing two music videos. First, Neil showed a video for Sonic Youth's song Moat, made by Ray Agony. This was included on a video album released simultaneously with the record, signalling the band's move to a major record label. The videos, mind you, were anything but mainstream featuring experimental videos by Richard Kern and Todd Haynes, creating a real symbiosis of mainstream and so-called alternative culture. Yeah, this is the tape. This came out on this. I was going to try and play it from here, but, you know, nothing's working. There is a VHS player there, but it's not plugged in properly, even though I've asked somebody. But, um, yeah, like 11, 11 music videos, a different film for each one. And you know that one. Um, that one is made. It's interesting. It's shot with a um, a very kind of simple video camera called a fi um, Fisher Price in the late '80s. Put out a video camera for kids called the Pixel Vision camera, and the Pixel Vision camera recorded video imagery on audio tapes. So you know, like C90s. You put this C90 into this camera, and you could record pictures on it. That's what makes the, those those really distorted lines when you see the band kind of performing. It's it's like uh, what is the resolution of TV, it's like 750 lines or something, there's like maybe 30 lines. So it's just really super primitive, super crude. So it's made using this pixel vision camera, which gives this really unique texture to it. There's a lot of like found footage in there too, as well, like buildings falling down. There's like performance of the band, buildings falling down, rockets, you know, stock footage of rockets in attack mode. And towards the end, we, you know, we've given no trigger warnings today, you know, strobes and you know, mortuary scenes. Sorry about that, we should have said something earlier, but. Um, but I think towards the end, 
and Simon mentioned this. Oh yeah, we, we, I was trying to figure this out. I think that um, I think there's that there's a clip from a Stan Brakhage film called The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eye, which is this, um, which is like, if you want to watch the scariest film ever made, I'm not in any way, Joe, I'm talking to the people out there and in in this room particularly. Go and watch. It's on the is a Criterion collection of Brakhage's stuff. It's it's really a film shot in a in a uh, in, an, in, a, in a morgue and there's a whole it's Brackish's films autopsies taking place and it's like nothing you've ever seen before it's extraordinary it's not it's not like it's not exploitative it's just deeply powerful it's not like it's like oh it's gross sure but it's it's not just that there's something deeply profound about it I remember seeing it in my second year it was just launched on us in my second year oh, we're gonna watch this today <laughs> no trigger, no like, trigger what? and I um, anyway but there's some clips no trigger warnings but there's some clips of, of that, I think, which appear in the end of the film as well, which is a sort of a nod to, again, that kind of cinema. And again, this was part of like a major label, like trying to sell a band to the mainstream, which is, I think, you know, really, is really, really interesting. And um, the, the, these little sort of signs of like this, these sort of alternative ways of seeing and little, like, if you're smart enough, you'd find out what these reference points were. If you were interested enough, you could dig deep and you could maybe find a way. A way, a way to find that sort of stuff. Right? They did. Um, a, they, they did an album with William Burroughs as well, didn't they? They did. Oh, um, or was that somebody else? That was Cob uh, Kurt Cobain did a did oh, a thing right. with Burroughs. Yeah, it was a ten inch. Yeah, but it's, a, it's similar. It was a uh, yeah, sort yeah. of embrace of alternative culture in there. Anyway. There was, there was, and um, and you know, it's it's you know again, it's a real kind of roll call of really interesting filmmakers who are sort of part of this from the underground and from the sort of soon to be overground. I think the guy who did the video for the lap Titanium Expose, he d he directed that from Juneberg a few years ago. So it's um an interesting launch an interesting launch pad. But there's there's all the videos have these myriads of different techniques which all kind of come from experiment the experimental side of filmmaking, and um, I feel like it was sort of a white bread AM radio kid it's like oh, that's really yeah, I, extraordinary I was, I was watching it I was thinking about that issue because I, I find so often in conversations about film um, particularly now um, when somebody is talking about quality they mean resolution yeah sure yeah uh, there seems to be this obsession with K's yeah, you know, how many yeah, K's yeah, has yeah, it got yeah. as if that somehow makes it a better film yeah yeah um, and watching that, I was thinking the kind of aphorisms that I remember being, uh, that was offered probably at Maidstone as well, which was, you know, if it looks like an advert, it is an yeah, advert. Yeah. <laughs> that there is, there is, there is a language there that you can't subvert. Mm, and no mm. matter what your intentionality, you end up adding to it rather than taking yeah, from yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And watching it, I was thinking this could never be an advert. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I really like it because of that. Mm. The, you know, it. You know, whether I like the music or not, it's yeah, kind of near, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's neither here, here nor no, there. Sure. But it's it's offering a, you know visual plane, which can't be mm. easily co-opted. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. You know, it's a denial of that, and I think. You know, resolution is one of the, those kind of boundaries yeah. which the mainstream can't accept. There's a thing about like, especially you see like Super Eight being used a lot on like adverts and music videos a lot at the moment, and you know you have that the sprocket kind of like in like it's been scanned in such a way. 
that's sort of become like acceptable low low resolution, but it's sort of scanned like 4K at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It's also really irritating to me that they do it as an after effect now as well. Oh, it's 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 also an after effect. But like in there, like you'll never see video look more like low resolution than that. It's like the pixel vision is like no, you can't go lower than that, which I quite like. Andrew's choice of video is for the Brian Eno and David Byrne number Mea Culpa, which coincidentally was made by Bruce Connor, so another instance of an avant-garde artist working in a popular form. Andrew also showed an introduction for Channel 4's American Football broadcast from 1982 to illustrate the similarity between Connor's work and the opening sequence for the programme, to say nothing of a further musical link. So that was 1982, and um, I, I was astonished when I, when I heard it, because it's using Spirit Jezebel, which is a track Brian Eno David Byrne track from that same album and I just thought oh this is really kind of curious and of course if you know Bruce Connor's um, mm-hmm. material mm. actually the the, yeah, you know, the yeah, use yeah, of yeah, yeah. the it's, American it's, footballers and the cheerleaders and everything yeah, yeah, it absolutely. does it it's sort of yeah interesting so he made um, two films for them so he made uh, the one you've just seen and he made another one called America is Waiting which is closer to a movie, so it's a mm. kind of cut-up of um, Americana very much with a kind of confrontational, mm-hmm. you know, Cold War yeah, feel yeah. about it. Um, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to show this today is because that album, which was from 81, mm was one of the first albums that actively embraced sampling, Mm. though of course it wasn't discussed as sampling at that time. And as Neil um, said earlier, so Eno had that very successful period of collaboration with Bowie. Mm. Um, And then after that, he he, uh, produced the Devo album. Yeah, that's Um, right. And then he worked on two Talking Heads albums, so Fear of Music and Remain in Light. And this was a kind of project between those albums. Um, So Eno in 79 had been recording late night radio Mm. in New York. And when he played it to Byrne, he he said that this sounded like a gothic America, mm, mm. America that he, he didn't know. So mm. on this track you've just heard, it's, um, it, I think on the, the liner notes, described as irate mm. um, listener mm-hmm. respon- <laughs> yeah. you know, response to, yeah. you know, um, a radio host. Um, and I think what's really interesting is that it seemed to open up the Pandora's box which takes us to where we are now Mm. in the use of material so their interest was in in terms of music was um, they borrowed from um, Borges and his notion of imaginary cultures Mm, mm. so um, at that time there was this dreadful term you know world music which is just really I think quite racist so Eno's idea was fourth world music, this mm. idea of a place where music 
comes mm. together from mm. different mm. sources um, and isn't isn't so easily defined. I think further to that, they had this notion of audiotopia, mm. Mm. the idea that these different musical strains somehow could mm. be um, um, placed in different juxtapositions mm. and that would offer up a new reading. And I've always liked that, the idea that sampling... Um, is a, a, a pedagogic gesture <laughs> that it hints that it hints mm. at other forms of mm. learning, mm. other mm. forms mm. of yeah, yeah. engagement, mm. other associations. Mm. Mm. That it's just so um, with the sonic youth, mm. you know, perhaps it, someone like yourself, Neil, mm. who's who's versed in that kind of American mm. rock and roll. Mm can hear all the different connections. Mm, yeah, sure. But of course, with something like My Life in Bush of Ghost, mm. those connections are far more to the fore. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And allowing, you know, a kind of a broader reading. Mm, mm. I think also it's just really, I just find, I do find it really interesting where certain things kind of pop, like where experimental things kind of pop up in the mainstream now. Like I think um, there's an episode of Mad Men, I don't know if you watch Mad Men, where they go to like um, the daughter their daughter goes to this bohemian party and report is playing, you can sort of see them watching it, somebody's projecting it in a room, right, in, in, one, of the, in one of the later episodes. And it's, so, I mean, it's just used there as sort of window dressing to sort mm. of say something about the times, but um, I don't think you necessarily watch that, you wouldn't watch that episode of Mad Men, oh, well, what was that film, how can I find out what it was? <laughs> I don't think it was credited at the end of the episode either. So it's a bit, it's a, it's a bit buried. I mean, maybe it's there, not that, you know, when you watch things and, and sometimes have these windows that pop up at the side yeah, that's right. and yeah, tell that's, you yeah. what music's playing or whatever. That, that's yeah. true. Um, yeah, like on um, uh, Prime, when you're watching a movie on Prime. I mean, yeah, well, with Mad Men, I thought for some reason you are going to talk about Eames' Power of Ten. Because I could, see, I don't oh, know if right. that's ever been featured in Man Man, but uh, I could see that whole maybe. kind of IBM yes, the power yeah, of computing yeah, fitting true, that's, very that's well true, with that. And I mean, I think that was another, and you know, um, kind of relates back to you, Dan, in a way that, that you know the kind of world fairs and some of the optical experiments, yeah. and of course the world fairs being a site of expanded mm, cinema mm, before mm, yeah. before Young Young Blood. Um, you know, coined coined the phrase um, or the term rather. Um, so it's this kind of like odd connections between you know new industries mm. and the you know visualization of what you know what they do, because of course PowerPoint isn't created on a computer. No, sure. But it's created to indicate the power of computing. Like, I think the first time I ever saw Berlin Horse was just as a series of stills in a book, and there was a time when like that, this this kind of cinema, the stuff we've been showing, was only really available to you in a book. Like it wasn't it wasn't distributed on DVDs and VHSs, and maybe that maybe someone would do like a program of that work. Maybe in London, you'd have to travel mm. to see it. So I was looking at a lot of this work, kind of imagining what, what oh this looks really interesting. What does the rest of it look like? And um, there was in the late '90s when um, there was a, a, a series of screenings that the guy, um, the, um, the pulp, the guy from Pulp, um, Mark, 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 Mark Weber, who uh, did all of these screenings. Um, I don't know. There was, but anyway, he he booked out this venue, this place called the, the the Lux in London, and he did a series of screenings where 
all the stuff I'd never seen, he was kind of screening it. So it was like all these Paul Sharrett's films, and maybe even this film. I think I had seen I had seen this film before then. Um, I remember being slightly like there's a some of it I'm finding a bit disappointing. Like oh, it was kind of, kind of better. It's better as images in a book than a film. Sometimes it sometimes it can be a little bit like that, really. But um, but I think that sometimes can be a problem with duration. Mm, so mm. you know. Uh, Personally, you know, seeing these two films, it's quite nice to see them on their own and then, you know, discuss them. I think I've always had issue with the short film program. Mm. The sort of sense that, you know, here's some works that add up roughly to an hour. Mm. Because in that, I think there's a tendency to kind of get lost. And of course, in filmmaking, I think... Often there, there, there is a hierarchy according to duration, which, you know, seems to me like an odd hierarchy. Mm, mm. You know, do we do the same in music? Mm. I don't, I don't think we do in quite the same way. You know, a, a, you know, a Beatles track which is three and a half minutes long isn't derided for being only three and a <laughs> yeah, half long. Sure, yeah, and yeah. it says, well, you know, mm. it's a great song, but if only they'd extended it to yeah, like yeah, 45 yeah. minutes, it would be <laughs> yeah, a proper take, song. We take it more seriously. I mean, I was just thinking what Neil was saying then about the idea of, you know, images of films in books. Mm. And I had exactly mm. the same experience. Um, I think one of the first like non-mainstream um, movements I became interested in was situationists and and it wasn't because I was particularly enamoured with Debord I remember seeing I think it was in the, the Sunday Times there was a you know a photo mm. spread of um, Paris from the 50s mm, and, mm. and it you know happened to kind of make mention of this and um in, in one of the, the images, you know, there was a guy in a, you know, a duffel coat and there was a sort of moody looking, um, you know, young, young, young woman and they were sort of staring into a bottle of wine and I just thought, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's what I want. <laughs> that's, you know, I, I was quite enamoured with that and yeah. I had no idea really, you know, it's sort yeah, of broader yeah, yeah. connotations. I, but the then, same, I did have that same thing though, again, mm. with finding a picture of a film in a book. In, in my case, you know, again, about uh, with, with it being an experimental film, what mm. the photo was, and it was a black and white photo in a, in a textbook mm. of um, the film strip for one of Len Lai's films, just mm. part of the film strip. Didn't know what the film looked mm, like. I could only see mm, mm. that sort of aspect of it. Yeah, and yeah. so it was years later that I saw it projected. Um, and and going from seeing that and thinking, I really want to know what that what that looks like in yeah, motion. Yeah, yeah, was yeah. But I think that was the thing. There was a seductive quality to it. Yeah. So you know, like with the De Boer films, they you know they were screened in the ICA in the early sixties, and then not until the 1980s were, were they available again. So there's a whole kind of generation of people who are resting on memories at best, mm. and probably second-hand <clears throat> memories as to what this work was. Um, so when then I was able to see um, Critique of Separation, mm. it kind of all made sense, but, yeah. you know, waited a long time for that moment. Mm. Also... Um, I think when I became a little bit more aware as to what was going on 
you know, back then it was time out and I would really scour time out. Mm. And if there was a screening at the ICA or wherever it might be or, you know, mm. the Lux, um, I would make sure, you know, kind of that I was there. And, off, and there was lots of work which I didn't know anything about, mm. Mm. but there would be like a kind of one work that I was curious about and it would then sort of open up mm. Mm. other vistas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I like film, yeah, film stills and books. It's like, you've got to kind of hunt it out a bit. So, oh, it's a bit elusive, it's hiding itself from you. I like that. But it was interesting in making um, this book, we kind of, you know, sort of Simon, there was many a time where we thought, if only, if only the contributing artists had better stills. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they seem to be, they, there's some, it's because the films are very rich. Yeah, mm -hmm. the stills that they selected somehow didn't seem to have the same aesthetic uh, attention. Well, yeah. Disappointing. In the end, all the stills are good. Okay, so, but yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I have to say that was largely, you know, Simon's diligence and digging out, you know, the right images. My my, my choices are excellent. <laughs> well, I'm not talking about. Well, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say you you've both touched on ways from the mainstream towards the avant-garde mm. to an extent. With the films like, you know, we, we've seen a couple of films that are responding to things that are sort of potentially part of the mainstream culture. Do you think that this stuff also has an impact upon it? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think every, well, everything's sort of like experimental becomes sort of a con kind of conventional in a way. I mean, from, you know, Soviet montage is a sort of an avant-garde, which is like, you know, every music video, every hip-hop music video of the scene is sort of driven by... Um, ideas around mon around montage, and you know, uh, you know, um, you know, a lot of adverts, commercials are sort of very montage based. So I think, yeah, the, okay. So is, is, does the mainstream feed off of the 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 avant garde, or does the avant garde, you know, connect to the mainstream? You know, what is you know what is the kind of relationship? Um, you know, I think uh, certainly the mainstream takes a lot more from the avant garde. And, yeah. I sort of a lot, a lot of the conversations I sometimes have with Andrew are like you know well where is it now and would you recognise it <laughs> because it seems like the culture we have now is actually like I see stuff all the time which I think oh, it's really like very radical very experimental you know it could be music videos or or TV shows or any, anything like this and it seems like when I was getting into this stuff it was much clearer you know where the kind of the weirder stuff was and the not so weird and I would say that the mainstream has become like. I don't, it's even ridiculous to talk about it like that. It's just everything. It's like yeah. that. I, like, like this idea of independent and mainstream or outside and inside. They're just sort of like, you know, uh, those those are not um, kind of categories. I think that make any sense anymore, and they're not they're not useful. But unfortunately, I'm just hardwired to keep thinking about everything <laughs> as being either inside or outside or against and for. You know, um, and it and it isn't really like that. So I think, but I think now it's it's you know there's so much kind of creativity you know happening yeah. within the mainstream you know it, it's it doesn't really matter anymore. I, th I think there's really. some truth in that, as in the connectedness, but I think there's an important di distinction. I think, I think, again, um, I'm I'm pausing because I think like like Neil has just intimated, I feel hardwired, and I, and I think you know it's like. When I'm speaking to my students, I think, am I foisting my prejudices yeah, on absolutely. them? Yeah, It's a real you know, worry. It's a real um, worry. But my, <laughs> I can't get away from this idea that the avant-garde, when it meets, I'm not sure if the mainstream is the right 
when the avant-garde or experimental meets more normative material, I think invariably what happens is it neuters it. It robs it of its criticality mm. and yeah. all that is potentially political. Mm. Because, okay, so Berlin Hors has is, is, is incredibly sensual. Mm. It's a visceral experience. But it would be a different experience if it was three minutes long and it, it was placed in a more poppy mm, type mm, environment. Mm. And I think invariably that's what happens. And, you know, one, one of the kind of... All, all of that generation of CalArts alumni who worked on the uh, first Star Wars films, you know, that, that was their criticism of, of Lucas, that Lucas just hadn't taken enough drugs. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't open to their ideas. Mm, mm. And they would, you know, they, they saw their, you mm. know, visual, early visual computer effects just being narrativized. Mm, mm. A lot of them have actually quite sort of, uh, they have a spiritual orientation. Mm. You know, they, they're, they're aiming at the transcendent. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. become you know, some effect for, uh, but going you know, a stormtrooper Yeah, but you've got, like, like Oscar Fissinger went and did mm. some stuff for Disney for Fantasia mm. and had yeah. all this, like, he was, Oscar Fissinger was just um, an abstract um, um, animator who was working with just, like, lines and moving colours and shapes and stuff like this, very kind of abstract. And Disney, I think, got wind of him and was really interested in working with him and he sort of did some stuff, but it was, like, just too abstract. Disney was like, would you put some little wings on the sticks <laughs> so they look like they could be birds? You know, um, I mean, I th- and I, think not, I don't think, in, in the end, nothing of Fissinger's, I think, is in Fantasia, I don't think. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think this is a really interesting question, and you, you're always how that, that infiltration of, of subversion, because mm. ultimately that's what it's about, isn't it? It's, it's subverting those normative codes mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. arresting the viewer's attention so that there's they are active they are engaged mm-hmm. i mean yeah. that's what it should be aiming at but of course it it can be stripped of all those connotations yeah, relatively yeah, yeah, easy yeah yeah, yeah easily. if you reduce it to pretty colors and stuff like this yeah sure yeah, you know i think you know when you a particular, a particular kind of vulnerable age or an impressionable age, you know, you're looking for these things which are kind of outside the dominant. And I think what I recognized as being outside the dominant were these sort of like textual differences. Like the, the world I was seeing was very kind of glossy and very veneer-like. And so when you start seeing things which aren't like that, you think, oh, that's, that's like an interrogation of that culture in a way, isn't it? And all the stuff I've shown is like, you know, breaking through the veneer of like um, the kind of the media spectacle that's around us all the time and, and kind of cinema. Um, and I, you know, I just wonder if that that's it's kind of an old idea or we live in a very, gl- everything is very, very glossy now. Even like my oldest girl, she watches like these kind of YouTube women who just seem to be shouting at the internet. They're just sort of sat there shouting about stuff like very glamorous. And it looks very low tech, but it's incredibly glossy at the same time. I can't quite, what is the substance of it? And then with digital stuff, it's a different kind of material materiality you're dealing with. The room could probably do with being aired <laughs> out. Does anyone want, would anybody like to buy a book if we exhausted <laughs> you? <laughs> Simon really should be saying Simon. that. Thanks so much to Dan for coming in today oh, to kind of report all of this. This will be going up online. We'll have a link to it. You can go back and watch, listen to it all over again. Um, thank you for coming. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, it's really great, really great turnout for this, and um, it's part of what you know. We're trying to kind of 
um, get more stuff happening on campus after you know two years mm -hmm. of like nothing going on whatsoever. So thanks so much. For and if anyone today. saw a still of this, they'd say it was an avant-garde lecture about What's American football. <laughs> Why not? Football? What are, they doing? what are these guys doing? Everything is connected. Everything. <laughs> Everything. Even that. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for coming, and um, great to see you guys. And uh, thank you. If you've enjoyed this first live show of How to Enjoy Experimental Film, don't forget to subscribe and check out the show's feeds on Instagram and Facebook for updates in case another live show is happening near you. Many, many thanks to Neil Henderson and Andrew Vallens for giving up their time to take part in this discussion. A huge vote of thanks to Simon Payne who organised the whole event, as well as battling terrible weather and train disruptions to be with us on the day. If you'd like to buy a copy of Film Talks, edited by Simon Payne and Andrew Vallance, please visit contactscreenings.co.uk. Thanks to everyone, of course, who attended the event, and thanks to you for listening. Do tune in again next time. <laughs>